Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. This week, why not brushing your teeth twice a day could cause a heart attack. Not just for a dentist, for you personally. And we'll find out why. Also, a new discovery reveals when early humans first issued a vegetarian lifestyle in favour of meat and fish instead... They got a bigger brain out of it, so that was important. And also how the humble mongoose has shown scientists that animals can teach each other tricks, traits and traditions. That's all on the way. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. I'm Chris Smith, and also here is Helen Scales. Helen. Hi, Chris. Well, also this week we're looking at the world of bees and ants. We'll hear how researchers have put radio tags on ants, those tiny, tiny creatures, to find out where they go and how they organise their colonies. Find out how they do that a little bit later. We'll also hear how bees are nature's stars of health and safety. Researchers in California have discovered how they risk assess their journeys when they go out of the hive. And in this week's Kitchen Science, Ben and Dave turn their attention to the age-old claim that bees really shouldn't be able to fly at all. But of course they can. Stay tuned to find out how they do it. Helen, thank you very much. And of course, if you would like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, it's chris at thenakedscientists.com by email, or you can send us a tweet on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This is The Naked Scientist with Helen Scales and Chris Smith. And as always, we kick things off by looking at what's been making science headlines around the world this week. Chris. Helen, how often do you clean your teeth and is it less than twice a day? Oh, it's absolutely always twice a day, if not more, I'm sure. Well, good for you. Your dentist will be delighted, but not only that, uh, so will your heart, because there's new research out this week. It's been published in the British Medical Journal showing that if you clean your teeth twice a day, then you have a much lower risk of having a heart attack than someone who doesn't. Now, for a long time, people have claimed that there is this link between poor oral hygiene and heart attacks and other vascular problems like strokes, but... Evidence as to why it happens is lacking, and most of those claims have been made on the basis of small studies which are just shown that, confirmed by a dentist, someone has got this periodontal disease. In other words, there's problems going on with the mouth and teeth, and then the association was made. There's no easy way to just say, well, has someone got poor dental hygiene? How does that relate to, to the risk of having a heart attack? Well, what Richard Watt and his colleagues at University College London have published recently, is a study where they looked at 12,000 people who were men and women, most of them over 50, in Scotland. They started with 12,000, but they had to actually sling 3,000 people out of the study because they didn't have any teeth, and having teeth was an inclusion criteria for the study. Um, but with the residuum of their original starting cohort, they followed these people up for eight years on average, and they weighed up whether or not they had a heart attack or some other vascular arterial event during that time. And they also made measurements of an inflammatory chemical in the bloodstream and various lifestyle factors. And when they married up, who had had a heart attack with evidence on how often the people claimed to be cleaning their teeth, they found that people who had poor dental hygiene, in other words, they gave a history of cleaning their teeth fewer than two times per day, had a risk of a heart attack that was 70% higher than the people who did clean their teeth twice a day. So this shows there's a really strong link. In other words, the risk ratio is about 1.7 times greater for the people who clean their teeth only once or less times a day compared with people who had better 
oral hygiene. So you might ask, well, why does this happen? And the people who had the heart attacks and had the poor dental hygiene also had very much higher levels in their blood of a substance called CRP, C-reactive peptide, which is a sign of inflammation. So what researchers think is going on is that having inflammation in the teeth and gums then trips over into the bloodstream. And because arterial disease is an inflammatory process, perhaps having inflammation going on elsewhere in the body also increases the rate at which inflammation occurs in the arteries and therefore damage happens to the arteries, therefore triggering heart attacks. How can we be sure that there aren't other factors that are tangled up in all of this, that people who don't clean their teeth also have a terrible diet and don't look after themselves or exercise? Um, Can we be sure that those things aren't also sort of playing somewhere in there as well? Well, I have looked at that, and that's a very good point. Um, And obviously there are other factors which are playing a role because people who have poor dental hygiene may also, as you say, have a deleterious lifestyle. They may be in a lower social class, for example. Both of those things are independently associated with having a high heart attack risk. But the point that the researchers and Richard Watt and his colleagues are making is that what we need is something that someone can ask a patient to see whether or not they're at risk. So in other words, if you're a nurse or a doctor and you're just doing a screening, someone walks into your surgery and you just want to find out what their risk of a heart attack is, by just asking them simply, how often do you clean your teeth? Could give you very valuable information as to the likelihood that person might need more or less intervention from a heart point of view. And it seems like a simple thing, really, just to spend a few minutes every day cleaning your teeth. Now I sound like a dentist, don't I? Anyway, I'm going to roll things back to a time long before toothbrushes were invented, but we probably still needed them, with new archaeological evidence that suggests that human ancestors gave up their vegetarian diet and began feasting on land and aquatic mammals around two million years ago. And it might have boosted their brain size in the process. Butchered remains of crocodiles, turtles and fish were found by David Braun from the University of Cape Town in South Africa and his team who've been excavating at Kubi Fora Formation in northern Kenya. Now the findings were published in the journal PNAS and they provide some of the earliest evidence for meat-eating among our human ancestors. Now one question you might ask is, well, how do we know it was people eating these animals and not other animals? And in fact what they did was they scrutinised the bones, the fossil bones that they found and found cut marks that are really strong evidence that it was people with stone tools who were eating these animals and there's also evidence that they were sucking out the bone marrow as well which is rather nice wonderful to think of the things that can be fossilized and these activities that went on a long long time ago we don't actually know exactly who it was who was eating these animals because there are no hominin bones in the same formation. Um, It could be that it was Homo habilis, one of our very ancient ancestors, or perhaps even some late Australopithecines. So they're the possible candidates. But the key thing might be that these aquatic species are especially rich in one form of omega-3 fatty acids that we know now is really critical for human brain growth. And it's a theory that having a diet very rich in these omega-3 fatty acids early on might have played a role in the fact that our brains very rapidly developed, they got bigger, we were much more clever, we were able to solve problems and become the humans that we are today, a really essential human characteristic. But we can't be sure, really, if these early butchers were just occasionally snacking on a crocodile or whether it was actually part of their staple diet or was it just an occasional meaty treat? We don't actually know quite yet. Did they eat more fish and meat because they had a bigger brain and therefore more to sustain? Or was it this switch that then meant they could sustain a bigger brain? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? We absolutely don't know at the moment. This is absolutely just a theory that it might have come along at the same time. We've really got nothing more than just knowing 
the effect that omega-3 has on our brains today and sort of extrapolating that to perhaps it had a role in the past is really, it's going to be very difficult to find out. But it's a great question and uh, it could have been either way, I think. So food for thought then. Absolutely. Well, also this week, scientists have shown that uh, animals can teach each other tricks and traits and pass on traditions. Historically, we've thought of this as a uniquely human thing to do, where you have passing down generations, various bits of wisdom. And apart from a few isolated examples, for instance, things in your domain, Helen, the aquatic domain where dolphins in Australia, for example, have been shown to put marine sponges on their noses to protect them when they're going fishing, and this seems to be a trait passed from mother to daughter, and there are a few things that primates pass amongst themselves, for the most part we've come round to the idea that animals probably don't teach each other things very much. But Corsin Muller and Michael Kant, who are researchers at Exeter University, have got a paper in Current Biology this week, and they would disagree with you wholeheartedly. They've been to Uganda, where they've been looking at mongoose. Mongooses? Mongeese? What, what, what's the plural? Uh, I go for mongoose, I think. <laughs> uh, whatever. They've been looking at these small carnivores, which actually are quite convenient study subjects, because they live in social groups. And another interesting trait about them is that a young mongoose, a pup, is associated early on with what's known as an escort. This is an older individual who usually is male, but pairs up with the pup to basically show it the ropes for a few months so that it learns the tricks of the trade. And one of the things that mongooses do is they like to eat things that come in hard shells. Nuts is one thing, but also shelled creatures. And the way they get at the contents of these nuts or the shelled creatures, snails and things, is they either pick them up and smash them against something hard on the ground many times until they break open, or they hold them in their paws and chew their way in. And which of those two things they do tends to be a preferred trait for one animal. So in other words, one animal will be a thrower, another animal will be a chewer. And they tend to use that technique for all the different things they do. What the researchers wanted to know is, well, does that trait get passed from an older animal into the younger animal? So what they did was make the mongoose equivalent of a kinder surprise egg. You know those things with a hard plastic case and inside a little present. So they took these kinder surprise eggs and they put inside a, a tasty treat with some rice and some fish and they first of all offered these to the older animals the escorting animals to see which of these techniques they would use to break into them either the throwing or the biting and once they'd labeled the adults as one or the other of those two things they then started offering the treats to the adults in front of the pups so the pups could see the adults solving this problem then what they did, after they'd done that for about ten trials, so that the pups got to watch an adult open one of these things ten times, they then started giving them to the pups and asking, and how will the pup open the thing? And not surprisingly, I mean, just as you would expect, they opened them identically to the way they'd seen their escorting animal open them. If, they, if the escorting animal was a thrower, the pup was a thrower. Now you'd say, well, how do we know they're not just copying the behaviour of the adult then? And actually this is where it gets clever, because they also, as a control, gave some animals some of those little plastic eggs that were already open. So they didn't have to open them, they just had to eat the food. So the young one just got to learn that in those plastic eggs that they didn't have to open was a tasty treat. When the pups were offered closed containers, then when previously they'd watched the adult just eating the open container, they used one or the other of the two techniques equally prevalently. In other words, there was no bias based on regardless of what the adult they were hanging around with used to do in other things. So what this shows is that this individual trait is passed on from an older individual to a younger individual by observation. The animals are learning off each other and it's contextual. It does, it, it, it's individual for each isolated circumstance. So animals definitely can learn off each other and pass on tricks and traits and traditions.
Fantastic. I saw some pictures of them breaking these uh, bits of food open. It was rather fantastic watching them fling them to the ground over and over (laughs) to get into their tasty treat. We hear a lot about the state of the world, the natural world, and especially the oceans, um, and the things that are going wrong with it. And occasionally we get news about ways that we can actually do something to help. And that's news that I have this week, that transplanting fragments of coral broken off during storms could in fact be a simple, cheap and effective way of helping to restore small areas of reef that have been damaged. Now, the equivalent on land would be if you had twigs broken off a tree during a storm and that you could stick these back in the ground and then let them grow and sprout into new trees. Now, a team of researchers led by Graham Forrester from the University of Rhode Island in the US have published a study in the journal Restoration Ecology and they've been assessing how well coral transplantation actually works to help healthy reefs grow back. White Bay in the British Virgin Islands in the Caribbean was the enviable study site for this paper. And the threatened elkhorn coral, Acropora palmata, was the focus species. And as its name suggests, it grows into a branching form like deer antlers. um, And these can get very easily damaged by storms. Now, the research team, with help of local students and residents, dived down and picked up these fragments that were on the seabed after a storm. They then took them to another site where elkhorn corals used to be, but they'd been wiped out by a deadly disease a couple of decades ago. And they fixed them in place using cement, underwater cement, resin and uh, plastic cable ties. They simply sort of tied these bits of coral back onto the seabed. Four years later, and 40% of those transplanted corals were still alive. And that's despite there was another big storm and some coral bleaching events as well, which um, is when the sea temperatures rise and they lose those vital symbiotic algae. The really good news is, and the crucial point of this, is that some of these transplanted corals had grown big enough to become sexually mature, so they were reproducing themselves and probably seeding other reefs nearby and really kind of helping to boost that local ecology and the health of those ecosystems. I did see a report a few years ago now where researchers were looking to do reef remediation, similar to what you're saying, but they also passed electricity through the water. So they had a big metal grid underwater, put the corals on the metal grid and then passed a a low current through this. And the coral grew about 40-50% faster in that environment than when it was just done with the coral being tethered with no electricity. And their argument was this is presumably helping to fix various things like calcium from the seawater, make it available to the coral so it can grow quicker. Absolutely, yes. But um, the key thing about this particular method is it's very straightforward. The the electricity thing is very nice, but can you can imagine trying to put a battery under the ocean? A little bit more tricky. It's very cheap, but it is labour intensive and there's really no option of doing this on a large scale. You can't imagine replanting the barrier reef, for example. It does offer a a sort of local option for people to help boost their own reefs in a particular area and, and help to make them more resilient to those bigger global problems that we know that reefs face today, including climate change and pollution and overfishing and all those other dreadful things that are going on. And, of course, the benefit that uh, reefs can bring to an economy because they attract all kinds of other industries, including tourism and fishing. Thank you very much, Helen. Uh, If you'd like to find out a bit more about any of the news stories that we've covered so far this week, they're all on our website, details and references. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. If you'd like to get in touch through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can, of course, send us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
Now this week we're looking at some of the creatures that live a colonial lifestyle, not just humans, but bees and ants. And it's an incredibly complicated world inside an ant colony, you wouldn't believe it, and there are different types of ant doing lots of different jobs. And in order to shed some light on what's going on in there, researchers have found some interesting ways to follow individual ants around their colonies, and that includes gluing tiny radio tags onto each ant. And Dr Elva Robinson, who's from York University, has been doing just that to find out how a colony comes to a decision. And she's with us today. Hello, Elva. Hello, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thank you very much for joining us. First of all, the question that must be going through everyone's mind, how on earth do you glue a radio tag to an ant? Well, it's a very fiddly process, and obviously it has to be done under a microscope because the ants that I have been tagging are just two to three millimetres long and the radio tags themselves are just half a millimetre across. So um, without a microscope, they just look like little bits of glitter. And how do you stick them on? Well, I use just a very tiny, tiny amount of glue and put that onto the thorax of the ant and then um, place the tag on top of that. So araldite, or should I say aralmite, perhaps? Uh, (laughs) It is araldite that we use, actually, yes. And what did this show? I mean, what were the questions you were trying to answer by tagging these ants? Well, I'm very interested in how colonies organise themselves and how the individual ants contribute to the overall collective processes in the colony. And the great thing about the RFID system is that it's possible to uniquely tag every ant in the colony. So that each tag has got its own unique ID. So when an ant passes the RFID reader, I know which ant it is and where it is and what time it's been there. So talk us through the experiment then. So this is in a laboratory colony of ants, presumably, because it would be almost impossible to try and do this out in someone's garden. Yes, with these tags, because they're so very small, they don't have a very long read range. So at the moment, it's only appropriate for laboratory use. So yes, we had several colonies in the lab. And what I was interested in this particular experiment is how the ants decide which job to do in the colony. So you've got some ants which are looking after the brood and some which are caring for the queen and others which might be patrolling the nest, um, constructing the cavity or going out and searching for food. So I'm interested in how the ants decide which job to do. And in this experiment, I changed the demand for particular jobs for foraging and also for brood care and looked at which ants switched to take on that extra job. So how do the ants know that X number of ants have gone out of the colony and or that there's a certain amount of food out there they have to bring in. How is that message relayed around the colony? Um, well, that's the very interesting thing because the individual ants don't have any overall idea of those kind of things, of how much food is available or how much food is required. So one of the things we were interested in is then how does an ant know that it should go out and forage? And the RFID system meant I was able to look at a whole lot of different factors affecting the ants because I knew for each ant where it had been before in the nest and what jobs it had been doing previously. And also I knew how old it was, the ant, and also I knew how much fat it had got stored. And I was then able to look and see which which ants went outside and foraged when I increased the demand for foragers and how that was predicted by all those different factors. So is it uh, a bit like sort of humans where we give the menial jobs to people who are pretty junior and we give the important jobs to the senior ones? Is there a pecking order in the ants or, or does it work out some other way? Well, yeah, it's not, not quite like that. So there, there are age differences in what jobs the ants do. So it does tend to be the older ants that go outside and forage. But what our study showed was that there's also big differences in how much fat is stored in the individual ants, and the fat stores are very valuable to the colony. So we found that although 
on average, the younger ants had more fat than the older ants. There was a lot of overlap in the distribution. And we found that it was the amount of fat that an ant had stored that was much more important than any of the other factors in determining whether an ant went outside. So, so how do ants size, size each other up then? Do, do they have some kind of pheromone that's responsive to how much fat they've got on board and the fatter they are, basically the lazier they are because they get to stay indoors? Yes, well, we don't really know what the mechanism of this is yet, but it's quite possible that the ant is able to perceive its own fat level through some kind of internal physiological hormonal process or even through the, the weight of its, physic its physical weight as it moves around. So an ant only needs to be able to perceive its own weight, not that of the other ants in the colony. So we suggest that as an ant gets leaner, it becomes more likely to go outside and forage. But this isn't just because it's getting more hungry, because what the ants tend to do is go outside and forage, collect food, and then bring it back and pass it on to the other ants in the colony, which are already quite fat. And those ants will then convert the new food to fat and store it. And the other ants will remain lean and carry on foraging. Is that because foraging is risky? And when you go outside, there's a reasonably high chance that you're not going to come home? Well, that's a possible ultimate evolutionary explanation for what we're seeing, yes, that the, the fat ants are very valuable to the colony and the lean ants are less valuable. And also, if they're older, they're less valuable. So then they might get lost through predation or they might just get blown away when they're outside foraging. But interestingly, what we found is that for the same level of fat, it didn't actually matter whether the ant was an older ant or a younger ant. So the age, age per se didn't really matter. It was the amount of fat stores. But on average, the older ants are leaner. So it is older ants which are going out. But it's not because of their age, it's because of their fat stores. And apart from obviously being extremely academically interesting to, to understand how these complex colonies work, because there are thousands of individuals in a colony, aren't there? Are there any ways in which this can inform the big picture? Can we make human systems, computers and so on, work better because of understanding how these organisms organise themselves? Well, these ants are great examples of self-organisation because each ant is making a decision based only on the information that it has about itself. It doesn't have to know the overall system of the colony. And that's quite an important lesson for lots of human systems where we tend to focus a lot on centralised control, where you have one control centre collecting all the information and deciding what to do. But obviously, if there's a problem with that control centre, then your whole system will break down. And for ants, decisions are processed in a very distributed way, so all the individuals contribute, and if any one individual is taken out of the system, it will still work. So in the case of our experiment... If some ants are removed, as we did in our experiment, then just the next leanest ants will go out. And if you keep on removing ants, then more and more corpulent ants, more fat ants will start to go outside. So it's, it's all very self-regulating. Maybe we should do the same thing for humans and sort out the obesity epidemic in the UK. Elva, thank you very much. That's Elva Robinson from York University. And uh, she'll be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any ant-related inquiries, then you can send them to us. It's uh, chris at thenakedscientist.com by email. Or on Twitter, you can send us a tweet. It's at Naked Scientist. Helen. Right, well, another insect famous for its colonial behaviour is the honeybee. And the keeping of these bees, otherwise known as apiculture, apiculture, by members of the general public, has grown dramatically in recent years, with the British Beekeepers Association seeing a 40% increase in memberships over the last year. But more interestingly, the number of people keeping bees in our cities, such as London, has also gone up fivefold from 30 to 150 people joining the London Beekeepers Association in the last four years. So we sent Mira Senthalingham uh, to find just what all the fuss is about. The honeybee plays a vital role in the pollination of our crops and our wildflowers, as well as producing delicious honey. But it's well known that their population is in decline. 
So one way to help the situation is to keep bees yourself, something that in the past was thought to be confined to the countryside, but now the field of urban beekeeping is increasingly growing in popularity. To find out more, I've come along to Camley Street Nature Park in London, where beekeeping company Urban Bees are currently running a course on keeping bees in an urban environment. With me is one of the co-founders of Urban Bees, Alison Benjamin. A hive is made up of three different types of bees. There's predominantly the worker bee, which is a female honeybee. There's about 50,000 of them at the height of the summer. Then there's the queen, again female, and her job very much is to lay eggs. And there are the drones, a few hundred drones, who are the male bees, who don't do very much at all apart from impregnate a virgin queen. And actually at the end of the summer, the worker bees chuck them out of the hive. You have to think of a bee colony as a superorganism. So in the way that we're made up of cells, a bee colony is made up of bees. Because actually the queen, she isn't actually in control of the beehive. She's very much a slave to the colony. So you have the three different types, but within that there are specialised roles for them within their colonies. Well, when the bees are first born, they come out and their sting isn't developed and their various glands to make wax aren't developed. So they're doing special duties in the hive, like they're cleaning the cells out so the queen can lay another egg in the cell. They might be feeding the queen, cleaning the queen. And as they grow a bit older, I mean, basically three weeks they'll be spending in the hive and probably the last of that week there'll be guard bees so they'll be at the entrance of the hive and making sure that bumblebees or other creatures don't stray in or keeping wasps away and then they'll spend three weeks out foraging for nectar. What about the structure of the hive itself? So we're here at the Camley Street Nature Centre. There are four hives here. They're about two foot squared. They're just a box shape, really. Unfortunately, it is pouring down with rain, so there are no bees out and about. They're all inside. But how, if I was to be able to see inside this hive, would it be structured? If you take the lid off, what you'd see is what's called the brood box, which is where the queen and her workers and the babies live and they live on honeycomb so you'll have 11 frames of honeycomb and these are basically just flat sheets yes they're flat sheets of wax that we actually give the bees they draw out this flat comb so it becomes 3d and then they use that as chambers in which the queen will lay eggs in which the larvae will develop in which they store their honey and their pollen So once the bees are here, the hive is there, so what then happens when the bees are sent out and about? What are they foraging for? What are they bringing back? Well, the bees are basically going out to get as much nectar and pollen as they can to feed the larvae that are developing in the hive. Basically, they're attracted to the flowers by the nectar that the flowers are producing. And when they go to collect the nectar, they then inadvertently pollinate the plants and they also as well as bringing back the nectar to the hive which is a carbohydrate the energy to feed the babies and themselves they're also bringing back pollen as well which is the protein that they feed the larvae each bee will survive for about six weeks during the summer so they need to replenish you know the dying bees what's the life cycle of these different bees and, and what say happens over winter then when they're not out collecting Well, they survive for about six weeks in the summer because it's said that they fly for about 500 miles before they're completely exhausted and and die on the wing. So 
if they're not out in the winter, they tend to huddle inside the hive to keep warm and only come out on warm days. So they can survive sort of October through to April, really, during the winter. But there's only about 10,000 of them during the winter compared to about 50,000 in the summer. So only a fifth of them really are left to keep the hive going over winter? Yes, that's right. You now specialise in producing these hives in an urban environment. Now, we are truly in an urban environment now. There are trains going past, there are motorcycles on the road just outside the park. But what do you need to consider when adapting all of this to an urban environment? You do have to consider whether you've got enough space if you were going to keep them in your back garden or on your roof terrace. It's not just the hive itself, which is about two foot square. There's quite a lot of paraphernalia that goes with beekeeping, you know, the suit and the the extra boxes because the hive grows throughout the summer when you're giving them boxes for the honey. Obviously, you need to be aware of neighbours. And on average, how much honey does a typical hive produce? Because at the end of the day, I imagine lots of people that do tend to keep bees want it to do so for the honey. It's a variety of reasons, actually. Some people do it just because the bees are in trouble. Environmentally, they just like the idea of keeping a creature that's out there pollinating. But obviously some people do keep it for the honey as well. And an average hive can make about 40 pounds of honey throughout the summer, if you think of a pound jar. And would you say there's much of a difference keeping them in an urban environment? People do say that the honey in urban environments now is better than honey from the countryside because there's such a rich diversity of flowers and plants in the parks, in people's gardens, just along tree-lined roads and railway sidings, whereas in the countryside you may have acres of land that's planted with just one crop. And also that isn't a very good diet for your bee if they're just surviving on one crop. So, you know, that they can suffer from malnutrition where they tend to be quite strong in, in the cities. Alison Benjamin, co-founder of the company Urban Bee, she was talking to Mira Senthalingam. 500 miles that these tiny insects fly, that's no mean feat, is it? If you want to find out a bit more about beekeeping, if you've been suitably wowed out by that and you'd like to get into it, then uh, you can find out more information online at uh, the British Beekeepers Association. They're at britishbee.org.uk. We've heard from Malk in Lowestoft who says, I'm not so convinced by the mongoose experiment. What do young do if they've never watched an adult? I'm rather inclined to think that these things come to wild creatures entirely by natural instincts. Well, the answer is, Malk, it's a good point. Um, These animals obviously know how to pick things up and they know how to manipulate them in their paws, so that's instinctive. But how they actually choose to break into the object is obviously something they pick up from an adult and the researchers did control for that instance that you've raised because by giving the escort animal the open egg, the young pups didn't have to watch an adult breaking into it. So therefore, when they came to open it themselves... Uh, the closed one, I mean, they either chose to smash it on something or to gnaw into it, and they showed equal numbers of them doing either, showing there was no bias. So that kind of does answer that question, that they do it by instinct, but they choose to do one thing or the other based on what they're shown how to do in certain situations by an adult or an, an older animal. Helen. Right, well, we've already heard about the complex social interactions that take place inside the hives of honeybees to nourish and maintain their colonies. Well, we also know that bees communicate in a number of ways, including that wonderful, famous waggle dance that they use to indicate where all the best bits of food are. Well, earlier this year, researchers discovered that honeybees also have a warning signal that they use to tell each other to avoid certain areas. And it shows us that their language is really much more complicated than we already thought. Dr James Nye led the team from the University of California at San Diego that made that discovery and he joins us now. Hello James, thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientists. 
Hello, thank you. It's a pleasure. So tell us more about this new stop sign that you've discovered in honeybees. Well, we've known for a long time that honeybees face various perils at food sources. For example, they're often uh, attacked by ambush predators such as crab spiders, which you can sometimes see in your garden flowers. They're cleverly camouflaged to look like the same color of the flower. And we've known recently that this danger affects their ability to waggle dance so that they try to recruit uh, fewer bees to food sources which they perceive to be dangerous. But what we didn't realize is that there is another system at play that allows a bee that's been attacked to warn other bees about her situation. And we looked at this in two contexts, one in terms of competition from other bees for a natural food source, which happens. Although it's somewhat more rare, you can occasionally see bees from different colonies fighting over a good food source. And then secondly, what happens when bees are exposed to signals of danger, such as alarm pheromone, or being physically attacked by a predator. So how did you go about looking at these ideas you had? Were you looking at bees in the laboratory, or were these wild bees flying around in the open air? Well, we had a bee colony in the laboratory, and we were able to see inside and through the glass what the bees were doing, and we had them trained to an artificial feeder so that we could control the situation more carefully. Occasionally, we had feral bees that would come and would try to take over the feeder. We had an assistant who was removing these feral bees. All the bees that we had trained were marked and were identified because we can tell if they come back to the colony that they are from our colony. Now, what we would do sometimes is we would let the feral bees continue to feed at the feeder. We would not remove them. And then we would see these fights ensue. Sometimes the feral bees would attack our bees. And in that case, the bees actually came back and they produced this curious signal called a stop signal where they go around and they will target a bee that's been visiting the same location. Um, we know that's based on the odor of the food source. So they'll target that bee. They will jam her head up against the bee that's waggle dancing for that location and give this brief piping sound that causes the waggle dancer to momentarily freeze. She will then reduce the number of waggle runs that she receives, depending in part upon the number of these stop signals that she gets. So essentially, these bees that have found, they've detected a problem, something that they're scared of out in their foraging area, they come back and they essentially tell everyone else to stop. They turn down uh, almost the volume of those announcements that are going out, telling bees to go back to that site. So it's almost sort of damping down that signal that goes out to say, go out and, and look at this particular flower, because actually it's going to be quite dangerous. Exactly. And maybe some of your listeners are wondering, well, why would she give up so easily? And it's interesting that she doesn't. Initially, our bees attack the feral bees and try to retain control of the feeder. And when they do so, they actually don't produce stop signals. In fact, it seems that they actually ramp up the recruitment of nest mates. But when the tide of battle turns and as more and more bees are attacked, they come back and report this by producing stop signals so that when eventually it's impossible for them to win the battle and to keep the feeder, they um, stop recruiting for it. So we've got waggle dance, we've got stop signals. Um, do we have any feeling that there are other ways that the bees are communicating that we're still going to discover? That's an interesting point. There are some interesting behaviours. There's something called the tremble dance, 
which is highly correlated with the stop signal. We're not sure exactly what it means, but it does in some contexts reallocate labor inside the colony. So you have this superorganism, as your previous um, speaker talked about, in which they have different tasks. But there's no single bee that controls all of this and is telling them what to do. So there necessarily are these signals that help to reallocate labor for where it's needed. The tremble dance is one of those signals where we're not really sure what's going on. There's also another signal called the shaking signal, which again seems to reallocate labor, but again, we're not exactly sure what it does. So there are quite a few mysteries that remain. As you say, lots of mysteries remain, but we are learning a little bit more to understand that language of the bees. But we also know that a lot of bees are facing quite a big problem at the moment, and we hear more and more about colony collapse disorder. Um, And I believe that's something that that you're looking into as well. Is language going to come into our understanding of of what's going on and why bees are facing problems today? Well, we've been looking at the effect of um, this pesticide, which is often sprayed on plants. Um, It's sold in Europe and the United States as gaucho, but uh, it's known by its chemical name as imidacloprid. It's actually been banned in some EU countries now because it's thought to be associated with bee death. This is, again, one of the dangers that bees face when they forage. They could come in contact with the pesticide and bring back small quantities. Now, there is a, um, a sort of lethal dose of any pesticide, and it's thought that this was not so detrimental to bees, but we've been finding that extremely minute quantities of these pesticides, when ingested by bees, can actually affect their behavior. Other researchers show that it seems to affect their waggle dance behavior. They don't seem to waggle dance as much when coming back after receiving this pesticide. Uh, But we were interested in in two things. Um, We know that in colony collapse disorder, we have this strange situation of a colony that's depleted. It's uh, sort of like the Marie Celeste. You you come aboard, everything is empty, and, you know, where have the bees gone? There are no dead bodies of bees around, as you would have in a normal disease. So one of the things we wondered is whether or not there is a nutritional imbalance that's occurring. What we found in our preliminary studies is that bees that receive very small quantities of this pesticide develop what we call a picky eater syndrome. Uh, In humans, this is akin to someone not wanting to eat certain things and actually typically eating things that are uh, unhealthy. In terms of bees, what we find is that the bees who would now normally accept relatively low sugar concentrations, what you typically find in nectar, are shifted. They become extremely picky, and they will only consume the sweetest nectars. Now, you might think that this wouldn't be bad, but in the environment, you don't often have your pick of food. And if you're going to reject most of what's available, that means that less sugar, fewer calories are entering the colony. There is a second aspect as well, which also relates to human picky eater syndrome. There's a nutritional imbalance. Bees need to collect pollen and nectar. Pollen is providing them with their protein. And interestingly enough, pollen foragers are ones that genetically are predisposed to not be picky about sugar. In other words, they will feed at very low sugar concentrations, and of course, they'll collect pollen. We suspect that what will happen, and we're doing these experiments right now, is that when pollen foragers are fed very minute quantities of this pesticide, they will actually shift away from collecting pollen because now they will develop an appetite more similar to that of nectar foragers. And if you have a colony where few bees are collecting pollen, 
you're going to have a nutritional problem, there won't be sufficient brood, and the colony will eventually decline. Well, that's all absolutely fascinating stuff. Thanks very much, James. That was James Nye from the University of California, San Diego, telling us about how bees communicate, how we're learning to really understand their language, and most importantly, how we're really starting to unpick that it isn't just if things like pesticides can straight out kill insects like bees, but if it interrupts their ability to talk to each other and makes them picky eaters, that could also explain why so many colonies of bees are doing very badly at the moment. I wonder if my daughter's been uh, at that pesticide. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. This next bit is for you, Corey Wolfs, who says, how do bumblebees fly? People say they shouldn't be able to. Well, Ben and Dave have been checking out the physics to find out how it is that bees get airborne. We'll be answering a question for this week's experiment, and that's the question, can bees really fly? Now, that might seem a stupid question because we see them buzzing around us all the time, but there's a scientific urban legend that, according to the laws of physics, bees can't fly. Dave, what's this about? Well, the story goes that in the 30s, there was a Swiss aerodynamicist who was having dinner with some biologists. And one of them asked him if he could work out whether a bee ought to be able to fly. So he did some really, really simple calculations. He made all sorts of assumptions, like that the wings the bee wasn't moving, the bee was moving about a metre per second through the air, and he discovered that the bee really shouldn't be able to fly. So the laws of aerodynamics state that if a bee just sticks its wings out, it'll just drop like a stone. Yes, basically, the law of aerodynamics say that a bee can't glide. And if you've ever watched a bee, it doesn't glide. So actually, the laws of aerodynamics are quite correct. So the bee must be doing something else. Why is it that a bee can't glide? It's all to do with fluid dynamics, the way fluids flow, which is an incredibly complicated subject. Very simply, there's one major effect which affects how the flows occur, and that's to do with whether viscosity or the inertia of the fluid is most important. So you've got a very, very viscous fluid like syrup. You move your hand through it, then the flow lines around it all very, very smooth. It's very gloopy and nothing very much exciting happens and your hand moves very slowly. So you've got a really runny fluid like air, If you've got air coming out of a nozzle, the air outside becomes very turbulent, you get lots of swirls all over the place. It's very, very complicated and it keeps on flowing for a long time. And that's when inertia is dominating. Now, in a plane, something big moving very quickly, inertia of the air is going to dominate completely. Something very, very, very small like a bee, the viscosity starts to dominate, which means that the rules for big planes just don't work anymore. So for a bee, flying through the air is like us trying to fly an aeroplane through syrup. So what trick do they actually use? This is why I've brought you down to the river, because I've done a few calculations and I've worked out that a hand moving through water reasonably slowly is going to have a very, very similar fluid flow to a bee's wing moving through air incredibly fast. So we're going to make our own model of a bee's wing just by sticking our hand in the water. So let's go down to the water's edge. Now, there's an awful lot of willow seeds, fluffy stuff, floating about on the surface of the water. Is this going to make it hard to see what's happening? Actually, it's perfect, because it means we can see the way the surface of the water is moving, which gives us a much better idea of what's going on. OK, so using your hand, show me what a bee's wing actually does. Well, the bee's wing moves, say, from right to left. It's sort of angled somewhere around 45 degrees. It's curved, and it's a lot more complicated than this, but, yeah, say, roughly 45 degrees. Moves through the air in one direction 
and it rotates round by 90 degrees to 45 degrees in the other direction, it moves back again. And this is very similar to a technique called sculling, which you might have used if you've ever been canoeing to make you go sideways or actually to push boats along. Things like gondolas use the one big oar at the back, which sculls to push them along and sometimes keep you up in the water when you're swimming. Yes, I can see from the fluff on the surface of the water that it's being pushed towards us. Now, if this was a bee's wing, that would be pushing the air down. So that's how it generates its lift. Well, then I was using very, very long strokes. and Actually, that's putting it into a regime much closer to a plane or a large bird. But with a bee, the strokes of the wing are actually of a similar size to its breadth. So in this case, you actually only want to move about the width of your own hand. That's right. I'll have a go now and go a, bit, a little bit faster. Now, clearly you're splashing about quite a bit this time, and a lot more of the water is being pushed towards us. But it's splashing. Doesn't that mean it's turbulent and it's not as efficient? It's splashing because there's a surface of the water, and if there wasn't a surface of the water, there'd be nowhere for it to splash to. In fact, actually, that splash indicates the pressure is getting very, very high under my hand. What's happening is that when I move my hand from left to right, is you've created a little spinning area of water, a vortex behind it, and when you turn around, you kind of crash into the part of that vortex which is moving upwards. That upward-moving water gives an extra force on the wing, pushing it upwards, and gives the bee a huge amount of extra lift. So it's not just the fact that the bee's wing is flapping, but it's actually because it catches its own vortex that gives it that extra lift, and that's enough for the bee to be able to easily fly. I have a feeling that because it's biology, it's probably using all sorts of other tricks, but that's one of the major ones, certainly. If the inertia is more important with a plane and the viscosity is more important with a bee, what about larger things like birds? Well, birds actually span this transition between sort of bee-type regime and a plane-type regime. A very, very large bird like a swan, it's basically flying by moving through the air, deflecting the air downwards like a plane does. So swans can glide really quite efficiently and they're basically flapping their wings just for thrust, moving through the air, and then they're gliding through the air to get the lift. And what about smaller birds, things like blue tits or hummingbirds? They're tiny. If you watch something small like a blue tit or a swallow, when they're flying through the air, they don't really glide. In fact, some things like swallows, instead of gliding, they actually almost tuck their wings in behind them. This is because gliding is starting to become very inefficient. So they tend to flap for a bit and then kind of just fall for a bit, then flap for a bit, then fall for a bit. And when you get even smaller to a hummingbird, you're flying basically in the same regime as a bee. So a hummingbird needs to constantly flap just in order to stay airborne. So there we are, starting with bees, moving up all through the birds and up as big as aeroplanes. This is how sculling your hand in a river can show you about the science of flight. We'll be back with more experiments very soon. So time down at the river and the laws of physics tell us how bees fly, provided you understand how their wings move through the air, getting an extra lift from the swirl of wind each stroke creates. We'll put pictures and video to illustrate this effect online at thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science, where you'll also find lots of other experiments to try out at home. Thank you, Helen. Uh, Nat Spirit said in Second Life, where we're also beaming the programme, so bees don't fly, they're effectively swimming in air, which is absolutely right. 
And you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking about social creatures that live like ants and bees this week in big colonies. And uh, with us is James Nye from the University of California, San Diego, and Elva Romson, uh, who is from the University of York. And Elva, I've got a question here for you from Eric Taylor, who says, why do some species have thousands of sterile individuals? If the point is, of life is to pass your DNA on to the next generation, why do organisms like ants, bees and termites produce thousands of inf- individuals that have no chance of reproducing? Well, that's a really good question, and actually in some species of ants there are workers that really are completely sterile, although in many species of ants and bees and termites the workers can actually reproduce a bit, but not as much as the queen. So this posed a problem for Darwin when he was actually thinking about evolution by natural selection, because usually evolution should move individuals towards the best chance of passing on their own genes directly to the next generation, and obviously sterile worker ants can't do that. But they're, of course, very closely related to the queen, who is their mother. And actually, because of ant genetics, they're even closer related genetically to their mother than we are to our own mothers, because ant genetics work slightly differently. So this means that their genes will be passed on to the next generation through their siblings, through their sisters, the future queens of of other colonies, and through the males that that colony produces. So it's less selfish gene, it's more kind of the genes will go, but you have to be there to help the genes flow from somebody else. But because you're closely related to them, it doesn't matter. Yes, so we call it kin selection, so um, acting in the interests of the family when it's very closely related. And there are also big efficiency benefits for these ant colonies because of the way they organise their division of labour, so they can very efficiently um, help their siblings to reproduce. Thanks, Elva. We've had a couple of questions about colony collapse disorder in bees. Brian Shorten wonders if radio signals could be confusing bees and Charlie Brent wants to know if it's perhaps mobile phone masks that are causing problems as well. So what do you think about that, James? There was an original study in India that created these questions and interest and what they did is they actually put a radio cell phone transmitter inside the hive but it really wasn't done with very many colonies and the results were ambiguous Uh, They were not statistically significant. I actually have looked at this paper. And in addition, the authors have said that their results were um, too broadly interpreted. So I would say the answer is that there really is no scientific evidence that cell phone towers or other types of electromagnetic radiation from communications devices harm bees. In addition, there are many areas that are afflicted by colony collapse disorder that do not have cell phone towers that are nearby. So it's not thought to be a good link. Thank you very much, James. Uh, We've also heard from John in Peterborough who says, if a bee gets lost from its hive, would it be taken in by another or would it just die? That's interesting. Uh, Bees do vary in their acceptance of uh, bees from other colonies. In general, though, the guard bees smell bees that are coming in, and if they detect a difference from their colony odor that's significant, they will reject that bee or even try to kill it. So very often these bees um, will be rejected. However, the way that many beekeepers work is they take one colony and they divide it over subsequent years. So in fact, there is a kind of relatedness among these different colonies. And if they are sister colonies, there is a good chance that that worker bee will be accepted. And Elva, to take the ant equivalent, what would happen under the ant circumstance? Well, again, it does vary depending on how closely they are related. Most ants are very hostile to ants coming in from other colonies, so usually they would fight and kill that ant. But there are some species of ants which form networks of connected colonies where the colonies bud off and produce colonies which pretty much stay in contact. So they're sort of colonies made up of lots of different connected nests. So then an ant that got lost could go into any nest and it would be fine.
Thank you, Alva. And James, just to finish in 30 seconds, Bet Starwinian in Second Life says, in the US, bees are being subject to mites and diseases. Is this behind colony collapse? It's definitely a part of colony collapse, which we think of as having four features. One are parasites, like Varroa destructor, the mite. Pesticides are thought to be involved. Viral and bacterial diseases. And then finally, management practices, which are not optimal. We're actually moving bees around a lot. Um, It's startling that in one month, about 80% of all bee colonies in North America converge in central California for agricultural pollination. And this can be very stressful because they're packing bees together and they're moving them around. And worker bees don't orient very well to a new location. They tend to get lost. Well, thanks, James, for that uh, rundown on colony collapse disorder and the sort of things that we think might be causing it. That was James Nye from UCSD in the States. Helen, thank you. Right, time now for this week's Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. Hello and welcome to Question of the Week, where this week the answer lies in a past life. Hi, my name is Zachary Andy from Greensboro, North Carolina in the US. My question is, can our genes code for our memories? So let's look at this from the field of epigenetics. Epigenetics are as they sound. They are epi, which means above, your genetics or DNA. And this information, which sits about your DNA, can tell that DNA how it should function or how it should be wrapped up inside your cells. And the way it's wrapped up can affect how it functions. So my name is Wolf Reich. I'm at the Babram Institute in Cambridge and I'm head of the Laboratory of Developmental Genetics and Imprinting and I'm also a professor of epigenetics at the University of Cambridge. So this kind of depends what kind of memories we're talking about. We work on epigenetic memory which is really the memory in the genome, epigenetic marks in the genome, and that can be passed on from cell to cell. And so that cells, when they divide, uh, basically remember what they were before. And so this is going on all the time. This kind of epigenetic memory is going on. And so all of the cells that we have in our body carry this kind of memory of their identity, of what they are, of what tissue they are. And this is really important because if that memory goes wrong, for example, the outcome can be cancer. And then what you're saying, is it possible that the environment and things that we experience is laid down in memories in the brain? That's certainly the case. Is that through epigenetic mechanisms? Maybe. And then to extend the question even further, is it possible that those memories that get laid down in the brain as part of an epigenetic mechanism could be inherited by our children and grandchildren? I think that's a big leap, kind of theoretically possible, but... Remember that brain cells are very specialized. The things that get laid down in the brain cells predominantly happens after birth. So epigenetic memory can be inherited by cells and help them to become liver cells, heart cells or even brain cells. But the things we experience through life create memories and they're recorded in or between our brain cells. And brain cells would have divided following the instructions from their epigenetic memory. But this epigenetic memory would have been written before your parents had collected any memories in the first place. And at that point, the germ cells, the egg or the sperm, which then transmit the genetic and epigenetic information to children and grandchildren, are already formed and are far away from the brain. And so the short answer is that the things that happen to the brain and may even involve epigenetic mechanisms to consolidate memory, in my view, are not so likely to be passed on to our children and grandchildren. 
Perhaps you can inherit epigenetic memory from your parents, but not memories from their very varied and interesting lives. There has been quite a bit of research on worm epigenetics. A team in Massachusetts in the USA found that worms which experience stress whilst developing would pass on different epigenetic information to its offspring than those which had been happy larvae. And some people think that humans who underwent stresses like malnutrition during development might pass their epigenetics onto future offspring too. We had a very relevant post on the forum from Diver John, who mentioned psychiatrist Carl Jung. And Jung coined the phrase collective unconscious, which included an inherited fear of things like snakes, spiders, and generally monsters with big teeth. But what do you think? So that's it for infinite memories, but how about some infinite mass? Hi, my name's Larry Knight, and my question is, what would happen if you were driving at light speed and you switched your headlights on? What about a lit torch being carried at light speed? What would happen then? Aside from all the speeding tickets, what would happen whilst driving with full beam at light speed? Let us know what you think by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or by writing on the forum at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. Thank you, Helen. And that is it. We've run out of time. A very big thank you to our guests this week, Elva Robinson from York University and James Nye from UCSD, talking about ants and bees. And also to our wonderful production team, Mira Synthalingam, Ben Valsler, Dave Ansell, Tom Simpkins, and of course, Diana O'Carroll. We're back next week with a look at lasers because it is the 50th anniversary of the invention of the laser. We'll hear about laser tweezers and we'll also show you in Kitchen Science how you can make your very own homemade laser for real. So join us if you can. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Naked Scientist.